It's time for the Hockey Minute, your source for all your hockey news and some opinion. Strap in for the fastest news in the NHL. This episode is proudly brought to you by... Absolutely nobody. We don't have any sponsors. Now here's your hosts, Brandon and Ryan. And here we are. Welcome back to another edition of the Hockey Minute. I am your host, Brandon, flying solo today. Ryan's out on assignment, but that's not going to stop me. We have five-time Stanley Cup champion, Hall of Famer Grant Fear joining us. But first, please, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get the show out there. So, I'm thrilled to introduce our next guest. Grant Fuhr is the man of the hour. Named one of the top 100 players of all time by the NHL in 2017. Well, no surprises as far as the starting goaltenders are concerned. Grant Fuhr in the nets for the Oilers. According to Wayne Gretzky, the great one himself, our next guest is the greatest goaltender of all time. Grant Fuhr more than likely will be named the first star. As he faced a total of 47 shots and allowed just two goals. Grant, thanks so much for doing this, man. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I thought we'd get started real quick here with some rapid-fire questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. All right, coffee or tea? Ah, uh, tea. Bauer or CCM Skates? Ah, uh, CCM Skates. Uh, Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods? Toss-up. I like both. <laughs> fair. Uh, Paul Coffee or Ray Bork? Ah, uh, cough, only because I know him better. That's fair. Uh, favorite current player in the NHL? Carey Price. I still like the goalies. Oh, there you go. Uh, favorite all-time player in the NHL? Uh, probably Wayne Gretzky. Most underrated player you've ever played with? Uh, most underrated, probably Dale Howarchuk. Uh, best goalie of all time, uh, aside from yourself, obviously. Uh, still a huge Terry Sawchuk fan. Oh, wow, okay. What's your, your favorite mask of all time? Uh, between the first two that I wore, I, you know, I like both of those. I'm an old-school guy. I like the full-face mask. And uh, final one year, who's your pick to win the Stanley Cup this year? Uh, this year, I think it's a toss-up. Now, you add 24 teams into the mix, it could be anybody. Yeah, it's, it's a really wild year going into it. Okay, maybe just uh, start by telling us a bit about yourself. When was the first time that, that you, you saw hockey, and uh, what made you get into the game? Um, I first saw hockey when I was probably about four years old. So my dad played a little bit, all my friends played. So it's just something you do in Canada when you're growing up. So when I got that opportunity, I took it. Yeah, that's fair. Who were your, your favorite players growing up? Like, did, did you always want to be a goalie, or was that something that you just kind of slid into? Uh, you know what? I picked goalie because the equipment looked cool and nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> I started at four years old, and I was a goalie right up until the last day I put my skates on. Wow. So that part of it was easy. But Glenn Hall growing up for me, because he grew up not far from me, was obviously somebody that I looked up to. And then I've always been a fan of goalies, just because of the masks, the equipment. And as a kid, that's what I wanted to be. How does it make you feel to be called the, the greatest goaltender in NHL history by the great one himself? Uh, you know what? It's nice to have him on your side. There's no question about that. But I look back at the guys that played before me, a guy like Terry Sawchuk, who kind of set the benchmark for goalies long before I came in the league. So hence why I, it was his numbers that we tried to get to playing. So that's why I still consider him to have been the best. Hmm. Knowing the Oilers already had a, a star goaltender in, in Andy Moog, uh, how did you feel when you got drafted? You know what? It was great to get drafted to Edmonton, but I thought I was going to go back to junior. And obviously Andy had had the great playoff run against Montreal. They had Ronnie Lowe there. They had Gary Edwards. They had Eddie Mio. So they had a lot of NHL goalies that had been in the league for a while. So I got to go to training camp with no pressure. I just got to go and play. 
And it's, I think, if anything, it made it easier for me because there were no expectations. Did you have any, any big uh, superstitions or pregame rituals that, that you stuck to? Something that you ate or had to do before every game? No, I'm, I'm actually the odd guy. just relaxed and look forward to going to the rink every day. <laughs> my goal was to be there by 4 in the afternoon. That was my own for a 7 o'clock game. That was the only thing that I tried to do. Well, you're, you're the absolute outlier for, for goaltenders then. I mean, obviously, the people know that they're usually kind of the, the quirkiest guys on the team. It seems like you're pretty uh, pretty laid-back approach to everything. Yeah, we're the oddball. We were normal. <laughs> Moving on to uh, some of your, your career highlights and stuff. It's Sutter against Fuhr. Save! Big play right here by Fuhr. If he lets it in, the Flyers are ahead 3-1. to one. But he does it. What's, what's the most memorable game or, or save of your career? Uh, probably my first game. I mean, I get to play my first game at home in Edmonton where I was born and raised, and I got to play it in front of friends and family. So for me, that'll always be one of the most memorable games. Which of your, your five Stanley Cup victories was the, the most memorable for you? I mean, they're all good because they're all different. You win it with different guys. You win it in different ways. So they're all memorable, and they're all great. So that's the fun part is they're all different. So you always have good memories that are different from each one. Does, does uh, any particular memory stand out for you? Uh, no, it's just the fun that we had as a team. And you go through different trials and tribulations over the course of a year. And yeah. the fact you win one, it's hard to repeat. So you repeat, you get through that, you lose one, then we win two more in a row. So you win again, now you got to repeat. And it's just different trials and tribulations, which makes the game fun. Speaking of trials and tribulations, can you just take us inside the Oilers locker room following the, the 83 loss to the Islanders? I mean, I, I know Gretzky tells a, a pretty famous story about uh, walking past their, their dressing room and expecting to see them celebrating and just kind of seeing the, the battle that they'd been through, right? Seeing them ice themselves and kind of um, kind of trying to take themselves back to health and, and him realizing what it takes to actually win. I'm just curious what, what you took out of that loss. You know, it's a learning process. I mean, in 83, I didn't get the opportunity to play, but you get to watch an Islander team that was going for their fourth cup in a row, yep. which is an extremely hard task to do. So you look at how they treat the game, the business, how they treat it as a business, and it was a good learning experience for us as a young team. I mean, having not won before, we had to learn how to lose before we could win. Yeah, absolutely. Who was your, your closest friend or, or friends on, that, uh, or on, on those epic Oilers teams? You know the beautiful part about our team is everybody was close. I mean, I still talk to a lot of the guys through even till today. So guys I played with in my first year, guys I played with in my last year. And that's the beauty of our teams is it was like a big family. And we're still like a big family. That's, that's awesome. I was actually listening to your, uh, your uh, Hall of Fame induction speech as I was getting ready for this interview. And uh, you mentioned that you had a, a special relationship with uh, Glenn Say there. I was just wondering if maybe you could describe what made that relationship so unique. You know, Glenn was kind of a father figure to us. And I think he, he allowed us to grow as hockey players, but he allowed us to grow as people. And I think that was one of the biggest things at the time we probably didn't realize. But as we got older, you realized that he was kind of molding us as people more so than mm-hmm. hockey players because you had to learn how to be a good person also. And so, I mean, it's, there's just so much pressure in all these Canadian markets. It, it kind of seems like uh, when you, you play in a, a northern place like Edmonton or Vancouver, any of these communities, there, there's a real uh, emphasis on personal development as, as, as well as just as a hockey player. There is, and it should be. I mean, I think that's we're lucky enough to play the greatest game in the world for a living. Yeah. So there, you start playing professional. I started at 18 years old, so you still have to grow as a person. And you're going to make some mistakes along the way, and it's good to have a coach to support you and an organization that supports you because it allows you to grow as a person. 
Can you just uh, take us inside the Oilers' locker room a, a, a little bit during that that dynasty? Like, what what was it like? Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously, Mark Messier is, is known for his leadership, but what did that actually look like in, inside the dressing room? You know what? We had more fun than anybody. I think that's the biggest thing is we enjoyed going to the rink every day. The guys looked forward to seeing each other. We had fun in the dressing room. We had fun on the ice. We had fun off the ice. It was just it's a great place to go to work hmm. every day. So, what uh, what made your relationship with John Muckler so special? Mark was fun to play for. And he's kind of an old school coach that was, there's, it's black or white. There's no gray area. You, you do it or you don't do it. So, it, I mean, Glenn was sort of the same way, but Muck was a phenomenal X's and O's guy that we all learned a lot about the game of hockey from him. I mean, all his experiences he'd gone through and such, and he's a very good tactician. So, we all learned a lot about the game from Muck. I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but how did you feel about the, the Gretzky trade when it happened? Uh, wh- where were you when you found out? I think we were all shocked. And I was out at a golf tournament in Newfoundland. I was at a Bob Cole's golf tournament, actually. So, and it was, it's a shock to everybody. But at the same time, we knew we still had a good hockey team and we're still capable of winning. Hmm. So you, you, you guys all basically took it in stride and just thought you could, uh, you could keep on rolling. Well, you don't have a choice. It's it still works. You still got to go to the rink every day, and you still got to perform. Do you do you think that uh, Gretzky going to L.A. helped grow the game? Oh, there's no question. I mean, I think it grew the game exponentially. I yeah. think if you if Wayne doesn't go to L.A., I don't know if you see teams in Anaheim, San Jose, Florida, Nashville. I don't know if you see those teams if Wayne doesn't go to L.A. Right. So we can we can almost credit you know guys like Austin Matthews coming out of the Arizona system. Right. It's just like uh, it it really expanded it into the the South for the states. It is, and I think as the game grows and more people get exposed to the game, you're going to see a lot more kids coming from different areas that you wouldn't normally expect it. Yeah, like it's 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 really doing a, a lot for. I mean. Yeah, just uh, expanding into markets where people wouldn't necessarily be be interested in the sport at all. And I think once people get a chance to see hockey, especially live, it's just it's, it's such an addictive sport to watch. Yeah, and that's the fun part is once you if you take a young kid to a game that's never seen the game before, the speed of it, the excitement of it, they become a fan for life. Yeah. And just like the the raw power and, and violence, I mean, like I don't even mean in the terms in terms of fighting, but I just I remember being a kid and like I'm I'm in my mid thirties, so I was going to see Pavel Burry, you know, in the early nineties, and just seeing uh, the, the the physicality and, and how loud the hits are and stuff in person, it's just like it's it's almost awe inspiring. Uh, the fun part is t- hockey on TV is, doesn't really do it justice. You have to see it live, and the closer you are down to the ice surface, you realize how big and how fast the guys are. And once you get a taste of that, then you want to see more of it. So your, your friend and former teammate, Kevin Lowe, was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame. Can you tell us more about Lowe and his style of play and, and what he brought to the franchise that was so special? Well, I think if you look at Kevin, the defensive defenseman on our team got zero credit. I mean, we were built on offense, but you still had to play shutdown hockey. And Kevin was part of a group of Lee Foglin and Charlie Huddy, guys like that, that played shutdown hockey on a team that didn't play defense. So they got no credit. And I think if you look at what Kevin accomplished over the game, he got six Stanley Cups. I think he was an all-star eight or nine times. And that's being a defensive defenseman on an offensive team. So it just shows you how good he was and what a good contribution he made all the time, not to mention that he was phenomenal in the dressing room. What did, uh, what did that look like for him being uh, phenomenal in, in the dressing room? You know, he's part of our leadership group along with Wayne, obviously, and Mark, and Lee Foglin when I first started out. They were all part of our leadership group. 
And to be successful and to be a championship team, you have to have a good leadership group. So the, the 87 Canada Cup team that you were a part of was probably the, the best team that's ever been assembled. the rest of the tournament you played every minute of every game would you just have sooner have had a game off sometime and how do you feel right now physically i'm loving it i mean uh, the more i play the better i feel so the more games i get in the happier i am and things worked out <laughs> can you just like maybe uh, talk a little bit about what it was like playing on a team whose first power play was kretzky lemieux messier bork and coffee but think of the greatest players in the game and i had the opportunity to stand behind and watch it every day so I, there's no better thing than that. When you get a chance to play with the best players in the game, obviously it makes you a better player. So to be able to be a part of that group and learn from that group was a phenomenal experience. So in, uh, in, in 95 and, and 96, you, you played 76 consecutive games for the St. Louis Blues, which is an, an NHL record. Do you, do you actually have a, a, a lot of memories of that run or are you just too tired? You were unconscious after every game. No, I had fun with it. Yeah. I mean, at that point, yeah. a lot of people thought I was too old and was done by then so it was kind of fun to prove people wrong that i could still play every day and play reasonably well every day so i enjoyed every minute of it wow did uh, did, did you have any goalies that kind of came up when you were the the starter and and, and the star that were in a similar position like did you ever take on more of a, a a mentoring role i think by the time i got to toronto we drafted felix potvin while i was there and i got to see cat play and grow as a goalie so that was always fun yeah he was wild to watch for sure do you have any, any stories that stand out for Potvin? You know what? He was a great kid. A quiet kid, but a great kid and a talented goalie. So that was, that was fun. the fun part of watching Felix play is he's, he was so talented, yet never really got any recognition when he was in Toronto. Yeah, I think, I think Toronto is pretty good for that with their, their, their goaltenders especially, right? They're always uh, they're underappreciated, let's say. Yeah, it happens in a lot of cities. I mean, it's the beauty of being a goalie. If you're good, you're supposed to be good. If you're bad, then you're the GOAT. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So can, can you just uh, maybe tell us a little bit about mentoring Dominic Hasek in Buffalo, where, where, you, you, where you won the William Jennings Trophy for best goalie tandem in 94? Like, what was the, the relationship like between you two? You know, I'd known Dom before from the Canada Cup. I mean, Dom had played for the Czech Republic back in the Canada Cup. So yeah. I had a chance to see Dom play and knew how good he was. It was just he hadn't had an opportunity to play yet. I mean, when he came over, he went to Chicago. Eddie Belfour was there, so he didn't get an opportunity to play there. In Buffalo, he got an opportunity to play. And people in North America got the opportunity to see how good he really was. So, I mean, you, it obviously wasn't much of a surprise for you to kind of see him take off when, when he did then. No, it was just a matter of him getting that opportunity. I mean, it's fun to practice with him every day because he works so hard and he doesn't like to be scored on. So in that sense, we kind of had the same mentality, but it, and it was fun to compete with him in practice. Uh, so when, when you had that iconic fight against uh, Patrick Waugh, what was going through your mind when you're skating the, the length of the Oyster to, to, to join that brawl? Yeah, you're just backing up teammates. That's all it is. It doesn't matter whether you're a goalie, a forward, defenseman, you're there to back up your teammates. And if the other goalie gets involved, then you have the choice to back up your teammate or not. And I would prefer to back up my teammates. Seems like that's, that's kind of leaving the game a little bit. How do you feel about that? Uh, everybody thinks it's leaving the game, but at the same time, it's still going to be part of the game. I mean, you're playing a game that's fast, that's got emotion, it's got body contact. It's never going to totally leave the game. As much as they try and run it out of the game, if yeah. you take it out of the game, the worst thing that's going to happen is the next best option is the guy's got a stick in his hands. You're going to get more stick work. And I think that's worse than fighting. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think a lot of the more old school guys that, that think like that would, would completely agree. And I, I think you see it in a lot of other leagues when they're wearing, a lot, you know, with a lot of mandatory like face shields and that kind of stuff. And there's just way more stick work and you're going to get more concussions and all that kind of stuff with, with people running around that way. But uh, I think a lot of the newer age guys have a hard time kind of understanding that. Well, you know, what? the game was a safer game when the players policed the players because nobody, you didn't see the cheap shots. And I think as the league takes over trying to discipline players, you see more and more cheap shots, which makes it more of an unsafe game. And that's the unfortunate part of it. So speaking of, uh, of the, the policemen of the game, what, like, you, I mean, you were obviously playing on the Oilers teams with, with Gretzky and uh, Semenko. I mean, surely you've got some neat stories about, about that partnership. You know what it is? Your tough guys make your best players your best players because it gives them room to play. They don't have to worry about guys taking cheap shots at them. And in Edmonton, yeah, we had high-skilled teams, but we also had very tough teams. And you had the lengths of Dave Semenko, Marty McSorley, Kevin McClellan, Donnie Jackson, Steve Smith, Jeff Bukaboom. You can go down the list. That our, our bigger guys gave our skill players room to play. And I think if you look at the teams that have all won the Cup, they've all had that guy. I mean – you look at Vegas, a guy like Ryan Reeves, when he was in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh wins. It allows Sidney Cosby to be the best player on the ice. You take Ryan Reeves out of that lineup, and you look at what teams do to Sidney Crosby. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's, it's the, the same with uh, Tom Wilson in, in, in Washington. It, it seems like most championship teams have to find that guy, but, but now those guys have to be able to, to play at, at kind of the, the pace of the game, right? It's, it's such an up-and-down thing now, so it's so, so north-south, right? Oh, most definitely. I mean, even back then, Cement could still play. He played on a line with yep. Gretz. So if you're going to play with Wayne Gretzky and Yuri Curry, you've got to be able to play a little bit. You take a guy like Marty McSorley, he played a regular shift on defense. and was a good defenseman. He played a lot of times in our top four defensemen. So, uh, yeah, they need to be tough, but at the same time, they have to be able to play the game. In, uh, in your opinion, who's the, the toughest guy in the NHL right now? It's probably Ryan Reeves. And I think yeah. he's probably the toughest guy right now. And, but he, he's also a very good player. He can move, yeah. He can skate, and he's got good hands. They put him on a power play once in a while, so you know he's got some skill. Sounds like you're, you're still pretty uh, active in following the game. I'm still a huge fan of the game. I mean, I watch as much hockey as I still can, so if I can get in three or four nights a week of watching hockey, I still do. Uh, yeah, we're, I think we're all looking forward to this uh, six games a day for the play-in series. I, I know one thing. I'm going to spend a lot of time on the couch when that starts up. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think everybody but my wife is looking forward to it. Yeah, our household's about the same. I think I'll be curled up watching a lot of hockey. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I kind of miss watching hockey right now. Oh, man, absolutely. Just uh, anything for a nice attraction. Who stands out to you as uh, kind of the, the top leaders in the NHL today? Uh, you know, without being in the dressing room, it's hard to tell. But obviously, a guy like Sidney Crosby is going to be good. I mean, you look at a guy, I think Connor McDavid's going to turn into being a good leader. But it, it's hard to tell without being in the locker room because that's where you figure out where guy, whether guys are good leaders or not is when you're in the locker room and you see them every day. Watching them put in the, the committed work and, and kind of grinding and getting better and, and doing the, the, the little things. It's the little things. It's the stuff to make guys feel comfortable. I mean, if you look at Wayne Gretzky, for instance... Any of the young guys that came to our team, he made sure that they were comfortable the minute they walked in the dressing room, whether they needed somewhere to stay, whether they needed a vehicle, just whatever they needed, he made sure he reached out to them so that they were comfortable. That's, uh, I mean, that, that must mean a lot for a young guy coming onto a team and then having Gretzky reach out and make sure that he's got whatever he needs. Oh, no, it means the world. And that was the great thing about our team is you learn from those guys, and as you move to different teams, 
that kind of tradition sort of carried along. So, I mean, there were a, a couple of times in your career that you could have retired, but in, instead you pushed on and, and continue to have just great success. So what does it feel like to make a comeback and, and prove your critics wrong? Uh, you know what? Sometimes you have to take a deep look inside yourself and decide if you want to push yourself or not. I mean, I could probably could have stayed in Buffalo for another four or five years as a backup and not really pushed myself. But that wasn't the way I was brought up. I wanted to be a guy and play every day and, you take a look inside yourself and you just realize as you get older, you got to push yourself a little harder and there's going to be some good days, some bad days, some painful days, but it's a commitment that you make. Yeah. And I mean, like you were awfully committed, like we talked about a little bit before, but 79 games in the 95, 96 season, that's just, that's insanity. That's never going to happen again, anywhere close. Right. I mean, they're, they're kind of moving more towards these, these tandems to try and keep guys rested for the playoffs. How were you feeling at the end of that? I felt great. I mean, that was the best part about it is I felt phenomenal going into the playoffs and then unfortunately had a little crash and burn with Nick Kiprios and wrecked a knee, but I've still managed the next year after rehab it all summer to get 73 games in the next year. So it's mind over batter more than anything. Yeah, no, I, I, I can totally see that. And it's like, I, I think a, a lot of the time when you think you're kind of at your limit, you always have that extra gear. And it seems like the guys that have a, a great success just always know that inherently, right? They always find a way to push. Well, you know what? When I was in St. Louis, I got to train with a gentleman by the name of Bobby Kersey, who trained with the U.S. track team. And training with him and watch seeing him work with elite athletes, you get to a certain point and then you realize you can actually get past that point and he'll push you past that point. And I was athletically good up until then, but I wasn't a good athlete. But after training with them, you understand what a good athlete is. That's, that's, that's wild. So, I mean, what, what, uh, what changed in, in your game to kind of make that switch? Like how did, how did he form you into being a good athlete? He just pushes you harder than you've ever been pushed. And the fact that, yeah, you don't like it, but you can still do it, gives you, it's kind of a breath, air, breath of fresh air mentally, knowing that you can do it. I mean, there's days he pushed where you just thought you were going to drop and you couldn't do it anymore, and he'd push you a little harder, and you'd get through it. Yeah, you didn't like it. You weren't very happy about it, but at the end of the day, when you look back at it, you were like, it's pretty cool that I could push myself past that point. So it was part of growing as an athlete. That's, that's awesome. I mean, you've, you kind of learned to uh, embrace the suck in a way, right? Yeah. And there's parts that definitely suck, and that was one of them. But <laughs> once you get through it, you enjoy it. We hear you're a pretty good golfer. Uh, Kevin Lowe said during the 87 Cup run that you, you took a break to play 36 rounds of golf in the middle of the finals. Uh, I guess when you're asked why you only played 36, you said uh, there wasn't enough time to play 54. Are you, uh, are you still very involved in golf? Um, you could say that. I work as director of golf down here in Palm Springs at a golf course. And with COVID and everything going on right now, I'm probably playing six days a week. Oh, wow. So we're still pretty avid at it. <laughs> You've kind of got this, this well-known, laid-back uh, kind of persona towards hockey. Do, do you think that that helped being uh, calm in those kind of third-period clutch moments? Oh, it definitely made a difference. I mean, if you're an uptight guy playing in a style like that, you're not going to like it very much. Or if you're a numbers-oriented guy, you're not going to like that kind of a style because your numbers aren't going to look great. But at the end of the day, you win. And that's all you were supposed to do. And it's still the number one statistic as a goalie is if I've got a goalie playing for me, I want to know if he can win a hockey game or not. 
Oh man, I, like I, I think that's absolutely true, and it, it seems. I mean, I, I guess there seems to be a, a bit of a split now between uh, people who think that you, you need your star goaltender, you need your number one, well, like with a bullet, and there's there's kind of other other trains and schools of thought where people think that you can have uh, a, a decent goaltender with a really good goalie coach to, to to mold them into whatever the system is, and they can get by that way. I mean, uh, how do you how do you look at that now? You know, a lot of times now they get hooked up on they're all hooked into save percentage, goals against average. I want to know if a guy can make a save for me with two minutes left in the third period to win a hockey game. Right? I, if he gives up an extra goal here or there and he's still winning hockey games, I'm okay with that. I want to know if that guy can make a save when I need it. And that was the biggest thing when I was coaching is you tell the guys, I really don't care about save percentage. Just make the saves when we need saves. And right. it's a more relaxed way of playing. And at the end of the day, Coaches get paid to win. They don't get paid if your goalie's got great save percentage and keeps losing. So right. they say winning. They say winning isn't everything, but if you're not winning, you get fired real quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Winning is everything when you're a coach, for sure. And I, I mean, just what, kind of on your on your last answer there, when you, you're talking about uh, being laid back and that helping. I mean, I just I, I imagine if you're playing that wide open system and you're uptight and you're you're bitching at your teammates and stuff, it would have made a lot more stress and strife, and uh, it probably would have been a lot less successful overall. Oh, yeah. I mean, we knew if we were up 5-1, it's got a chance of being 8-4 because you're going to give up some chances because guys are going to take chances to keep scoring. So, you know, going in, if you're not uptight about it, you just play. Right. I was watching some of your highlights when I was getting ready for this. Like like I was saying, I didn't really – I got into hockey about 91, 92, so I'm looking at some of the 80s highlights, and, like, you're alone. You're totally alone. <laughs> it's like, it's like you, you and three attackers coming at you, and you're making these insane saves, and it's like uh, – it's a, it's a whole other world back then, right? Well, we just played a little different style. I mean, nobody ever yeah. attacked all the time at that time. And Glenn said they wanted to play an attacking style of hockey. So we attacked all the time. And we just, we knew there were going to be some odd man rushes. We were going to give up some chances. But at the same time, we were okay with that because as long as we were playing offense, we just thought we could outscore the other team. Yeah. And I mean, what, what a perfect mentality to have, right? Always going in with this like two nothing lead in your head, no matter what, right? Hey, when you know they're going to score you three or four goals a night, you can make some mistakes along the way. <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering if you have any, any stories about coaching in Arizona. Uh, you know what? I love coaching in Arizona. We had a lot of fun. I mean, I got a chance to coach Curtis Joseph, which is not much younger than I am, but it was fun to see how he thought the game, to see how close we were to thinking the game and to squeeze. We got a good a couple of really good years out of him. So that was fun. You get to see the young guys. Of course, coaching with Wayne's always fun. I, we had a great coaching staff with Wayne, Alfie Samuelson, Rick Tockett. So it was a good time there. You, you mentioned Wayne Gretzky, and I just have to ask well, what, it was, what it was like seeing him as a coach. I enjoyed it. I know how competitive he is. So... That was the fun part is you knew going in how competitive he was. I'm not sure the players realized how competitive he was. So between Wayne Alfie and Rick Tockett, they're very intense guys and they coach like they were intense too. So that was the fun part. Um, uh, you, you kind of touched on it a, a little bit earlier, but you had a, a collision with, with Kiprios that, uh, I mean, it kind of it, it, it set you back, right? I mean, it was a, an injury that you, you struggled with until the end of your career. And, and I mean, what's it, what's it like talking to, to, to Nick now? Have you guys, uh, have you guys uh, talked about it or, or, or mended ways? Oh, no, it's, we're fine with it now. I mean, it's something yeah. that happens in the playoffs every year and has since long before I started. Guys fall on goalies all the time. I just happened to have a leg caught in the wrong spot and it tore a couple of ligaments in a knee. Up until that point, I'd probably been falling on a hundred times that year and nothing happened. 
So did he, does he mean to fall on me? Yeah, he did. Did he mean to hurt me? No. Guys do it to distract goalies. Right, yeah, the, the old accidentally on purpose. Yeah, and it happens. I, every year we played Calgary in the playoffs. If it didn't happen 10 times a night, you'd be in shock. So it's just the, one of those odd things where it finally caught up with me. Who is the, the most underrated player that, that you played against? Underrated that I played against? Probably a yeah. guy like Theo Fleury was fairly underrated when I played against him. Uh, Alex McGillney. I don't think Alex okay. got a lot of credit for how good he really was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we saw him here in, in Vancouver for a little bit, and he was, he was definitely a, a, an excellent player. But uh, what, what made him stand out to you? We had all the skills. I mean, I didn't realize how talented he was until I played with him in Buffalo. He's got, he, he could skate, he could shoot, he could check if he wanted to check. I mean, he had all the – everything you check off in a box of a player that you want, Alex had. Did he show it all the time? Not really. But when you saw him and played with him every day, you realize how good he really was. What about uh, Theo Fleury then? It, just a competitor. I mean, that was the great thing about Theo is he's four foot nothing, but just the ultimate competitor. He never gave up. He just – it was a hard grind for him every day. And that, that was the fun part about playing against them. Dougie Gilmore was like that too. Not a very big guy, but always fun to play against because they always gave 110% and cared, and they made it fun to play against them. Right, yeah. I mean, I think those guys are always the, the fan favorites too, right? I mean, uh, what comes to mind for me is somebody like Brandon Gallagher for the Habs now, right? He has that same attitude. Yeah, I mean, they're fun. You hate playing against them, but the hate's out of respect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, uh, moving on a, a little bit, I mean, it's it's pretty famous that you were suspended for 60 games for substance abuse. I, I mean, and I just, I, I think looking now, if, if that were to happen in today's era, it just, it would be handled completely different. So, I mean, do, do you think that that suspension was fair? Um, no, but there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So, I mean, that's, at that time, there were no rules for it. So, they just kind of made it up as they went, and I paid the price for it, but if you do the crime, you got to pay the price. So whether I liked it or not, whether I thought it was fair or not, didn't really matter. It's just the way it was going to be. When, when did you know that uh, substance abuse was a problem for you? It wasn't so much that it was a problem. It was that the, the part that I didn't like was I got punished because I admitted it. They had no real idea. Right. The fact that, the fact that I came out and said, yeah, I did it, they decided they wanted to punish me for that. So it was a Two, almost two years passed from the time that, that it actually happened. So that was the problem. Right. And I mean, just like how backwards is that whole situation? Like you, you come out, you're honest about the situation, you've, you've dealt with it yourself, and then you get punished. Like I, I just feel like that must discourage everybody else who was in a similar position to you to just shut up and, and not say anything, right? Oh, would it, anybody that had a problem would have been driven underground. There's not a chance right. they'd ever admit it. So right? the good thing is they came out with the league came out with rules afterwards to try and help the players. At that time, they weren't there to help the players. It was more to punish the players. So if there's anything good that came out of it, it's that they came up with some bylaws and some rules to help the players. Yeah, I mean, like from from my perspective, it almost seems like they were they were trying to cover their, their ass, right? Like they were trying to, to, to not suffer some sort of embarrassment to the league, which I don't think it was, but I just, it felt really short-sighted. And I just, yeah, it's, uh, it, if I were you, I'd be irritated. So good on you for being so <laughs> so gracious about the whole thing. Well, there's a couple other guys that had gone through the issue and didn't get punished near as badly. So, I mean, it's just, they needed a scapegoat at that time and I fit the bill. So you've, you've obviously felt the, the pressure of, of racial tension. Uh, after hearing uh, articles by Akeem Aliyu, what would you say to, to young players who are going through those kinds of experiences today? 
in a perfect world, they wouldn't be going through it. It's 2020 right now. It shouldn't be happening, but I, you don't ever want to see it in sport. You don't want to see it in minor sport with kids. You don't want to see it anywhere. And the fact that it's still happening is disappointing. And the way I look at it is kids aren't born hating. It's taught somewhere. So I think the biggest problem is you got to find out where it's being taught and change that. And if you look at everything that's going on in the world right now, there's a lot of hate being promoted that shouldn't be. And that's where the issue is going backwards, if anything else. When you're looking back into the 40s and 50s as to where it is today. So they're going backwards instead of forwards, and society should be progressing forwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. But was was um, what did like? Did you ever have any experiences with with racism just in hockey when when you were growing up in in that world? Well, you get the odd called the odd name, that sort of thing. But I mean, as a kid, I was my parents had taught me, don't let it bother you. Yep. If you react, then they react. So if you do, if you say nothing or do nothing, then a lot of times it just goes away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is it right? It's not right, but at the same time. The minute you react, it's going to get worse. That makes total sense. Yeah, it's just typical bully stuff, right? It's just like don't don't give them the time of the day and move on, and don't give them the satisfaction of a reaction. Yeah, it's just a different version of bullying is all it is. So I just uh, moving on a, a little bit to the the hockey world today. Uh, what are your thoughts on the the twenty four team tournament? I mean, like it's it's obviously going to be a, a unique thing. Do, do you think that there's any kind of asterisks attached to whoever wins the cup this year, or do you think it's going to be even harder? I think it's going to be harder. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna put an asterisk to it, I put an asterisk to it and say it's going to be harder. Instead of 16 teams, it's 24 teams, and you've also just taken three months off. So to get yourself geared back up again, play what one exhibition game and jump right into the playoffs, it's going to be a lot harder than it would be if you were coming out of a season. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I'm I'm so curious to see what it's going to be like because I mean I'm sure you know this better than anyone, but there's there's lots of guys that train at uh, varying degrees during the off season, right? I think some guys it would have been right into it for the last couple of months, and some guys might maybe not so much. So I bet for that play-in round, we're going to see uh, some pretty wild disparities between uh, fitness levels. But it's going to be interesting because some players are going to think, okay, well this isn't going to start back up again, and they would have gone into summer mode. Other guys would have pushed themselves all the way through, and now you've added eight more teams. So now you're going to get some teams that didn't think they were in it who are all of a sudden in it. Right. So now you're going to see where those players are at. So it's going to be a wild crapshoot. What do you think it's going to be like for players living living inside a bubble for like maybe six weeks at a time? Do you think it's going to be easier or harder than what you had to go through? Well, training camp's kind of a bubble anyway. Because they, they basically chew up your whole day at training camp. So I think it's going to be a lot like training camp. It's just going to be that it lasts, it's going to last a lot longer. Instead of being a three- or four-week bubble, you're in a three- or four-month bubble. So that, at some point, that's going to get a little frustrating. But once the games start, it'll be a little easier. Yeah, it's, it's, it has to be a, a real challenge for players to be leaving their, their families and then that kind of thing for, for such a long time. I mean, I give them credit for, for making such a, a big commitment. It is. It's a huge commitment for the players. It's a huge commitment for the families. So the fact that the families are going to have to either live in that bubble or they're not going to see their loved ones while they're in the bubble. So it's going to be hard on families. It's going to be hard on the players. Do you uh, you have any Cinderella or or, or dark horse pick for who you think just may come out of this? Uh, You know what? I think it's the one year where it's hard to pick somebody because the teams that were playing good have had three months to cool off. 
And you take a team like St. Louis that was rolling along, and if you look at the start of last year, they were a little slow starting the year. Well, do they start faster or do they start slow? If you start slow, you could be gone in the first round. So it opens a lot of doors. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. And, you know, it, it, kind of towards the end of the season, I, I definitely had Boston as, as my team that I thought was going to roll through it. I mean, and I hate to say that being a, a, a Vancouver fan, but it's just it's the way that they were playing. <laughs> but now it's like I just have no idea how they're going to come out. No, I mean, take a look at the Canucks. You don't know what they're going to be like. I mean, they were making huge progress towards the end of the year. Does that progress slow down because they had three months off, or does it pick up where they left off? I mean, that's the crapshoot. You look at a team like Montreal, they were kind of going nowhere. Now they've got fresh life, and they've got a fresh carry price. Oh, man. And, like, if if you were Pittsburgh, wouldn't you be choked to to, to draw that, right? You have to play carry price and beat them three out of five. And it's like, man, we were totally in the playoffs. (laughs) Montreal had a 0.5% chance of making it, and now we have to do this. Most definitely. And it's a crapshoot in a three out of five. That's, That's the one series where a goalie can steal the series. Goalie gets hot for two games, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if like if you're if you're down two buzz to carry Price, I mean that's that's going to be tough. Well, that's going to put the pressure on the upper seeds because you got the two home games. If you lose a home game in a best of five, it's a big deal. Not so much in a best of seven, but in a best of five, you lose that first home game. It's a big deal. What do you what do you think about those teams that have the buys? With like you know they're basically waiting for the play in round to be over and kind of twiddling their thumbs. Like I know they're doing the basically exhibition games to keep warm, but it's uh, going to be a completely different pace. Oh, there's no question. And you play a couple exhibition games. It's not like playing a playoff game. So the teams that are actually playing in the play in round are going to be closer to firing on all cylinders than the lower seed that they're going to play against. They're still trying to find their legs in game shape. So it's going to be inter- it's going to evil, even everything out, which is going to be fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I, I think all the hockey fans are happy that we get an extra two weeks out of the playoffs. Yeah, extra two weeks, you get six games a day on TV. It's a great thing. <laughs> How do you think that uh... – today's game has changed like just in terms of the the goaltending position i mean uh, obviously kind of you you played for i mean in, in my opinion the the largest uh, era of change in, in any position which is is goaltending in any modern sport right i think from the 80s to the 2000s it it underwent just an absolute revolution did 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 you find that kind of hard to keep up with or was it uh was it kind of a, a natural part of the, the progression for you no part of playing goal is being able to adapt and i think what you've seen is from the time I played, it went into a transition where it was more about angles and percentages. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing is more of a transition back to the way I played where you have to be a little more athletic now because there's no hooking, there's no holding, and goalies have to have movement again. So the guys that just yeah. drop and take angles away are having a little tougher time now. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you you, you mentioned that because you're saying uh, you, you like to watch Kerry Price still now. And, I mean, he's, he's kind of uh... – He's almost like a like an ice man out there, right? He's he's so clinical with his angles, and he doesn't really move unless he has to. But he still has that just extreme athleticism when he needs it. Yeah, he's more of the hybrid, and I think you're going to yeah. see a lot more goalies going to that now. Where I think it's trending back towards a hybrid. That yeah, you can butterfly and take angles away, but you still got to be athletic and be able to move. Are there any uh, up and coming goaltenders that that you're kind of keeping an eye on now? I think Carter Hart's going to be really good in Philly, and I think he's yeah, the real yeah. deal. He was great in junior and his. First couple of years in the league, he's been really good. So he's going to be the next up-and-coming star, I think. Um, well, uh, awesome, Grant. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Is there anything that, that you'd like to, to promote or, or, or plug before we let you go here? 
No, I just hope everybody stays safe and everybody's good. Awesome. Well, Grant, man, thank you so much again for coming on the show. This was an absolute honor for me, and I, I know all of our listeners are going to get a great kick out of it. So stay safe out there, and, and thanks again for doing this, and hopefully we'll talk to you later. Sounds great. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening. From Brandon, we'll catch you next time on the Hockey Minute. We'd like to take a second to thank you, the listener, for joining us. And a big thanks goes to our writers and production team, Jules, Mark, and Matt. We couldn't do this without you. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at The Hockey Minute, as well as leaving voicemails on our anchor page, at Hockey Minute. And always make sure to subscribe to whichever platform you listen to your podcast. That's going to do it for us. This is Brandon and Ryan. We'll talk to you next time on The Hockey Minute. It's an extra special honor to be the first man of color in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And it just shows that hockey is such a diverse sport that anybody can be successful in it. And I'm proud of that. It's the greatest game in the world. I mean, I'm happy to be a part of it. And I'm more happy that I can give back to it. And it's special. I mean, it's the one thing that I truly do love in life is I love hockey.